This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to another episode of My Argyle Life, the series in which we delve into the stories of those that share the terraces at home park and away. Uh, we've got a good one for you today, or well, hopefully it's a good one. Graham Clark, former chair of the Argyle Fans Trust, how are you? Hi, thank you. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm hoping there's a few stories. Um, well, I hope so. You, you've said there will be. So j- let's just start from the beginning. You know, that famous terrace chant, who are you? Who am I? Well, I was born in Watford, spent all my school years in Croydon, same school as Roy Hodgson, Lenny Lawrence, Steve Kember and Bobby Houghton, who was the Bristol City manager. So a good football pedigree. Um, I played for Croydon and Surrey schools, just didn't make the final trial for the England schools under 15s. I did play a London final at Sellers Park in front of 10,000 people and chose to have my worst performance ever, losing 5-0 and getting dogs abused from the crowd. And I learned then, don't abuse players. It's not nice. And it's stuck with me ever since. I played um, semi-pro in the Eastman League for Merston, who I understand Barry Howes is now managing. They were on the TV a couple of years ago in the first round of the FA Cup. I was lined up for a trial with Chelsea, but I got injured and couldn't play, so I decided to do my FA coaching badge, and I got the equivalent of a B licence the age of 20 under Dario Gradi, the now disgraced Dario Gradi, but a fantastic coach at the time. But my football upbringing is my dad and granddad were QPR fans, so I spent my schoolboy days following QPR at Loftus Road, watching the likes of Rodney Marsh, Stan Bowles, Tony Curry, I regard it as a privileged football upbringing. Funny enough, I did miss the Argyle 3-0 win famously, but my dad did go and told me that Argyle were the best team he's seen at Loftus Road for years. I had a job for four years in the Midlands, went to watch Wolverhampton Wanderers, and then in 82 got a job in the planning department, Plymouth City Council as a senior planning officer. And, um, well, my last QPR game was the 82 
Cup final at Wembley and my first Argyle game was the game v South End in August 82 in the third division uh, as, as it was with Bobby Monker as manager and I did look up the crowd it was 3,850 so quite a contrast to what I've been used to previously. My recollection was that I stood on the lower Mayflower Terrace behind the home dugout which at that time was at the towards the Devonport end. It was the intimacy and proximity that I really enjoyed and embraced, which is something I'd never had before going to games at Loftus Road, standing at the Loftus Road end. The banter, the abuse they gave the away managers, the sort of vaguely decrepitness of the stadium, it was totally different, but it felt very real and very um, alive. And I fell in love with our goal that day. I, I just... The accessibility of it, I think, is if you know, many people living <clears throat> living around Argyle are not used to, well, they, they don't see it, but Argyle is a one club city, and that means everything the media, you know, Spotlight, West Country News, Radio Devon, Plymouth Sound, Herald Morning News, etc., Sunday Independent, as it was, was all Argyle. Well, living in London, you were one of many teams and barely got a mention. So the focus was our goal every day, every week, every Saturday, every Tuesday. I just fell in love with it and became a member of the Green Army, if not a Janner. I don't think even after living here 41 years, I still don't think I qualify as an honourable Janner yet. I don't know. I do live within the sound of the dockyard siren, though, so I don't know if that counts. Yeah, I think that counts. I think that is the limit. Um, if you can hear that siren, then you're officially a janitor. Um, What brought you to Plymouth then? Uh, the I got a job at Plymouth City Council, a senior planning office job, which actually led me on to one of my favourite moments because I was the lead officer for the um, new stadium at Home Park. So I was right in at the beginning of the horseshoe as it became and right through to the end and working with... John McNulty, who was then the chief executive, and and Dan McCauley, who bankrolled the uh, whole construction because there was a grant from the Football Foundation, 3.9 or 3.8 million. The club put in 300,000, but Dan had to bankroll it. And we had very many interesting meetings with the contractors bar, who were all hairy-ass Celtic supporters that used to fly off back to Glasgow every other weekend. And there were some very interesting, if not abusive, conversations between the two of them. And we were stuck in the middle, fearful that the whole thing was going to fall apart. But thanks to John McNulty, he got it all all done. And the horseshoe was built. But unfortunately, of course, the club didn't have the money to do the main grandstand, even though the city council would offer them some money to do it. Paul Stapleton and the board decided not to. And... Hence, we were a horseshoe for 20-odd years. Yeah, I feel like we're not even going to scratch the surface of, of stories that you've got. But just just so we, we cover off your, your Argyle-watching days, opposed to um, fighting battles in, in courtrooms, etc., just run us through your early, like, obviously you've run us through your first games and your early memories, but, like, who stuck out for you on the pitch rather than off it? I think Kevin Hodges, obviously, not least because... He was always on the right wing, so if standing on the Mayflower Terrace, he was, he was always sort of running past you for at least half the game. The Obviously, the 84 semi-final team, 
but really my hero was Tommy Tynan. I got to meet him. My son was um, mascot for one of the games. We got a picture with him. And um, I went to the Golden Hind when he was uh, manager there to get him to sign the picture. And he remembered every every game. He could describe nearly every goal he scored. It was amazing. Although most of them, I think, we were within the six-yard box, if I remember correctly. But um, he was a character. <clears throat> I do remember my son being so nervous that he was sick down the sponsor's trousers just as we were about to go on the pitch. So uh, it, will, it, it was uh, an interesting day. But Tommy Tyne was probably my absolute hero of the early, my early Argyle years. But in terms of overall, I think David Frio would be my favourite mm. because he just glided across the pitch he had a magic touch. He would come late. Great header, great tackler. He had a bit of bite about him, which I really liked. I do remember his fracas with John Sheridan, in which they sort of followed each other off the pitch. Franny Lee, Norman Hunter style, and I think continued in the tunnel. But um, And then latterly, Graham Carey, obviously. I think it's all sort of number 10s, really. And then Danny Mayer in, in the last few seasons um again the number 10 blessed with the most incredible turn that i've ever seen any player in my life just couldn't score a goal for toffee that was his own problem yeah you know if he added a few more goals to his game then he wouldn't have been playing for us yeah i think we'd be we'd be talking about him in a completely different breath in the fact that he left us and, and went on to bigger and better things moving on then I think this is the bit where Sam is going to take over because he actually remembers things. Yes. Joining up with the Fans Trust, I don't know if you want to cover any more of your time at um, Plymouth City Council first, but obviously, the, you know... No, no, I mean, it really was the involvement in um, getting the ground done from project, as a project start to finish, was some, which is something I was really proud of, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty impressive thing to look at and you know know that you had your hand in it. But obviously, the Fans Trust, if people don't know what the Fans Trust is, can you just run us through what it is and, and how you... Well, how it, I think it how it came, it came about, and to be fair, and as Sam will know, I wasn't originally part of it. Um, I didn't make the original meeting at the Stoke Social Club um, because I was, all, I was away in London at the time. The trust was set up because it was clear under Tottenham Gardner that the club was hurtling into financial meltdown and um, the first I got wind of it was when um, Vivian Pengeli spoke to me she was leader of the council and said that James Brent who was then chair of the Plymouth Development uh, Business Council I think it was was asked to see if he could help and he, he said he went to see Keith Todd and, and Keith Todd said yeah can you give me half a million pounds to pay the players wages this month and that was the first sign we thought, hello, something's really serious. And then Ian Delar famously of uh, Pasotti found out that HMRC had a winding up order on Argyle, which even Argyle didn't seem to know about, obviously through the Pasotti website, made it known. And I think it was a call to arms for everybody because then we knew it was serious because nobody knew what even what a winding up order was, let alone what it, what it actually meant. But the reality was it could be the end of the club. And that was why the Argyle Fans Trust was formed 
uh, I think back with the backing of Exeter Supporters Trust, who were fantastic in the early days. I know that, but but I wasn't part of it. There was a board elected, and I think Sam will confirm. There was a lot of fractiousness within the board, a lot of people falling out with each other, people were resigning. And, and then out of the blue, I got a phone call from Linda Gilroy, who was the MP, and said, would I like to be on the trust board? They, they needed some people with knowledge and experience. I said, well, yeah, OK, I'll do that. And then an hour later, she phoned up and said, oh, oh, the chairman's just resigned. Would you want to be chairman? I said, well, hang on, I haven't even met anybody yet. No, no, we want you as chairman. I said, well, OK. Then an hour later, West Country TV phoned up and said, oh, we gather you're the chair of the Algar Fans Trust. Can you do a live TV interview? I went, mm, well, all right. But I was on the BBC Trust, so I had to phone Natalie Corner and tell her, she said, oh, you're the Algar Fans Trust chairman. So can you do an interview for us? So did an interview with the BBC, did an interview for uh, West Country before I even got home. And of course, you can imagine. Well, I'm going, what the hell have you done? They've phone calls, just seeing you on the telly, just seeing you on telly. And I don't have a chance to tell anybody. And um, so it was a bit of a baptism of fire. But um, we had, I remember our first meeting at Brent, away at Brentford, we got a room and there was so much infighting. And a lot had, had to be knocked together because without the fans' trust being the official voice of Plumfargo, it would have been very difficult. You know, pay tribute to all the board members, Peter Ryan. Um, I don't know, Sam, Sam, you, you weren't actually a board member. No, you? well, yeah, yes. You sort of were and you weren't, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, to, to, to give a little bit of background on that, um, <clears throat> it was quite a long time ago. I was actually 17 at the time, and uh, it started for me in the November of 2010 when John Petrie, so the, the initial five, the initial six who were part of the first email chain who were involved in setting up a fans trust and liaison with Exeter and arranging the meeting were Jim Benton Evans, um, Peter Ryan, Lee Jameson, Celia Ellicott, John Petrie and myself, um, who were all Argyle fans. And I think what made it quite interesting was that they had a representative of their teens, which was me, their 20s, which was John, their 30s, which was Lee, uh, I believe their 40s, 50s and 60s. I won't uh, say, say which, which, which in that order, but um, 40s, 50s. So we had one from every decade, effectively, which I think was good in the sense that it was a, you know, a, a wide cross-section of fans. And for the first six weeks, I was kind of involved. I think I would probably quite easily said I was the least involved in the six just because I had the less life skills, less life experience at that point. But I, I still did my little bit. I helped, helped organise, helped hand out leaflets, that kind of thing. When the board became an officially recognised supporter society, as opposed to just a bunch of people sending emails, at that point I kind of had to duck out because the um, society rules that we adopted from supporters directors they were then, uh, basically said that you had to be a minimum age of 18 to be a formal board member. So whilst I was a de facto board member in the first six to eight weeks, I was never an official board member at that time, although I did again stand again for the board many years later and, and in fact still am uh, on the board of the Fans Trust uh, now. So, yeah, effectively, uh, so kind of yes and no. And at, and at the point when I had to duck out because I was... Uh, back in day 17, I think there was kind of other, as Graham kind of alluded to, um, there was sort of other, you know, uh, stuff brewing behind the scenes, which I think was kind of natural. The stakes were incredibly high and none of us had ever done it before. And, and naturally, there were a few maybe disagreements about direction that happened to an extent. But with, with all that kind of unfurling and some people uh, resigning and unresigning and all the rest of it, it then led to then led to Graham, as he as he rightly says, being asked to come on board and, and then indeed to become chairman. So... 
Um, if, so just sort of taking over from Aaron here then, Graham, just rewinding a little bit from, from where we were. Obviously, just maybe to focus more on the reason why you were asked in the in the first place. You you obviously were, were very well respected within the council from, like you say, Linda Gilroy and, and Vivian Pengele, among others. But naturally, as well as that, I remember, um, and, and I, by the way, I have done some prep for this and I have researched the rough order of events, but some bits of it are a little sketchy. So if I'm getting anything in the wrong order, please do correct me. But throughout the, what we might call the gathering storm clouds, if you like, the kind of late 2009 going through 2010 and, and really intensifying in late 2010, it became very clear that all was not well behind the scenes at Argyle. Wages were being paid late and then they weren't being paid at all and 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 and, and, that, and all the kind of chaos that, that brewed from that. But you, Graham, were, were a regular on Pesotti under the name, I believe, Milehouse Man at that time. Um, yeah, that, that, that's, yeah, that's right. And, and I mean, it's difficult to imagine it now, but it was the time of dial-up internet. So I remember logging on to Pasotti, making a cup of tea before I actually was logged on. It was mm. that slow. And if you did a post, it just took ages to go through. And also it was the, before iPhones, really. I think I, I think very few people had smartphones, iPhones with their emails on. So it was all Nokias with that you know, ridiculous method of texting. That was the means of communication. So I, I didn't know anything about Pasotti at all until somebody told me. And then when I saw what was being said, I just had to sort of be, because I, I knew a lot of background, I just became informed. And I, I think as Sam has intimated, got a bit of a reputation, somebody knows his stuff possibly, certainly on the, you know, the ins and outs of the property market and what people were trying to do. I had the measure of Keith Todd and Roy Gardner pretty early on. I think, yes, the, I mean, the World Cup bid was, I mean, I did read, they spent, the club spent £1.2 million on the World Cup bid, can you, you know, um, which was doomed to failure, I think, because Bristol City would have always got it, I'm pretty sure. Um, I remember Argyle lost £2.8 million that year, found out that the wage bill, believe it or, or the salary bill, was £8.5 million. That's, you know, 12 years ago, it's more than it is now. So that's the scale of what was happening. And as, as Sam said, I was fairly strident in my views on, on things. And that got me a reputation as somebody that might be able to help the trust. And so it proved. So, Yeah. And, and so so what was it that really would, uh, obviously, you know, naturally when the, the HMRC court case came up, that's always a very bad sign. But sort of prior to that point, what was it that really sort of raised the red flags for you? What was it that, that, that sounded the warning bell that all was really not very well because I, I think you were one of the first to really say hang on a minute we need to adopt the brace initially here something's happening so what were the main warning signs you yeah well that? i think first of all it was the knowledge that the wages weren't being paid which i never declared mm. publicly to be fair because that wouldn't have been right um then hearing about keith todd's plans for central park which were unbelievable and i think even involved the tesco on the car park and you thought oh my god what are they doing it was never going to happen, and that was what it was going to fund this, that, and the other. And that, and I mean, as as a man, I didn't respect him at all. He, uh, Roy Gardner, never quite got to grips with somebody who was at a top position, Man United, and chairman of one of the companies of Man United. How he could be involved in so naive in something uh, that they were doing at Argyle. It was. It was clowns yeah. running the club, and it was terrible. It was terrible. 
Although I suppose perhaps the, the, the previous board can't be entirely that off the hook because the way he's no, built no, did I was go just very come on to that yeah. because, Sorry, go on. Yeah, I mean, the, the previous board realised that they couldn't fund championship football. That was clear. They, they were all local people. They did seek investment famously from Japan, which are still to this day never thought anything arrived from Japan. They, but they did sell, uh, I think, 20% of their shares to... Kagami, I think it was, and they got you know, a fairly tidy sum each out of it and then hand it over and with the hope that their shareholdings would increase in value with under somebody else's control. And it just went tits up. It was horrendous. And it's like a runaway train. Once the debts accumulate, there was no way back. And I could see early days, because... Um, I remembered a lot of my friends were Crystal Palace fans, and ironically, they'd gone through a similar thing. And ironically, Brendan Guilfoyle was the administrator that eventually got them through the administration out the other side. But it was the fans that saved the club. They it was all down to Lloyd's Bank, and they were going to pull the plug. And I think famous is five minutes to go, and the fans swarmed around Lloyd's Bank in somewhere in London, and they decided not to do it. And that was the sort of background to what I thought was going to happen with Argyle. I've intimated it publicly. And slowly but surely, we did. We, we, you may remember Peter Risdale suddenly appeared, allegedly on a walking holiday on Dartmoor, but ultimately admitted that Paul Stabledon had contacted him to see if he could help. He came in promising the world. He sort this out, sort that out. We have investors, blah, 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 blah. But... I think he soon realised it was a perilous situation. And when you don't pay HMRC, they were gunning for a football league club to take one down because the way football creditor debt works, they never got, they weren't a secure creditor. So they were desperate to know somebody. And the Argyle fans, all of them were desperate for that not to happen. And they, they were fantastic. Uh, absolutely. The mobilisation through... Pasotti particularly, we didn't really have Twitter in those days, so the social media side didn't really gain much pace until towards the end of the year. Um, but it was all hands to the pump. Um, the trust was set up and ready, and I remember it was March the 4th when Guilfoyle walked into Home Park. Peter Ryan and I were ready and waiting for him, and Amazingly, he came over and spoke to us and said, we you know, we want to be involved in all your discussions. And and Brendan Gifford agreed, and, and we were. Uh, and I will give him credit for that. But that was just the start, which I'm sure we'll come on to. Yes, indeed. So so timeline-wise so far, we, we kind of knew all this was, was gathered, you know, like out of early, the storm clouds were gathering throughout 2010. Peter Ridgedale appeared on his, his walking holiday, as it were, for the, the game against Huddersfield, which was in October. And I think at that point, it was becoming really, really uh, dire. Um, there, were, there was still that little glimmer of hope that some fans held, whether that was misplaced hope or not, that the World Cup bid might sort everything out. But then in the 2nd of December, that became very clear that it wasn't happening, as Graham alluded to. There is always the very strong chance that Plymouth might have been whittled out anyway in, in 2013 when they came to narrow down their their final list of selections, but perhaps if 
if England had been selected a host, that might have kept the Wolves to the door for for a little further, but perhaps may, may have only delayed the inevitable. But it, it didn't happen. Um, so we're now in December 2010. The fans' is in its infancy. We had the famous meeting at the Stoke Bar and Grill, the amazing moment where Roman Lario turned up. So fast forward into early 2011, the board is now an officially recognised organisation. Uh, yours truly has stepped down and, and Graham has come on. And I'm going back to where we were earlier, did, did a couple of interviews on, on that day one. So... Tell me, Graham, talk me through, through those sort of first few weeks, that kind of February, March 2011 time, kind of that, that baptism of fire. You know, what, what were the main challenges you had to deal with from, you know, internally, externally, whatever? I had some very interesting meetings with Gil Foyle and his sidekick, a guy called David Hinchcliffe, who was a fancy law, lawyer from Walker Morris, I think who amazingly accompanied him on every administration that he did. I think he did Luton and Palace before, and Bradford Bulls, I think, as well. And we soon realised this was money for old rope. It was fees, 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 fees. And Guilfoyle, I remember seeing, was on £465 an hour. That's in 2011. Imagine that. And he had... The wonderful excuse, he, he, for some reason, he liked Langdon Court Hotel, as it, as it was then. And nobody could understand why he, he ensconced himself there. But then we found out that it had no mobile phone signal, so nobody could get hold of him. That was, he, he, he was just rarely there. He left it to others. Ridsdale was involved. Um, there were others that we kept seeing. There was one fractious, fractious meeting where Hinchcliffe, was very arrogant. I wasn't at that meeting, but famously, Damon Lenzer, who was one of the ex-Argyle directors, was on, on the group. He famously offered to take him outside and sort it out that way, uh, which apparently set Guilfoyle. I think they realised we weren't the country bunkins that they originally thought we were, and we were well-informed, very motivated. And, and you've got to remember as well, and this is... And, and they don't often get the credit, but people like um, the GTs, Gary McGuire, Mark Russell, um, Bill Kilroy, they were fundraising to pay the staff's wages because under the administration, the football creditors were the, the players. They got first dibs on the wages and the staff didn't. So there was many people working at Home Park who didn't get paid. So Gary and the GTs, sorted that out they did amazing work to fundraise with fans best you might remember sue pollard with uh, fundraising ken bill 50 50 people like lee raps rapson doing a march the argyle community really really came together as one and i think the administrators realized that we were a force which was really positive. The other side of it was that we had all these different people made uh, interested and blah, blah, blah. Uh, every day there was some news about somebody who was going to make a bid and offer and all the rest of it. But very rarely did any of it come to fruition. It was quite a dispiriting time as hopes were raised and hopes were failed. And as weeks went by, the debt was getting bigger and staff weren't being paid. Everyone was doing their best to get the best, pay as much as they could towards them. And we were hurtling towards what was called the creditor, creditor's voluntary arrangement, and whereby the, the administrators would make the decision on what was going to happen. We'd been working with James Brent prior to that, 
because it, he was always the last resort. So we wanted to have a safety net in case everything went wrong. And he managed to strike a deal with the council, sell and lease back of the ground. But um, being last resort, Guilfoyle and Ridsdale and Hinchcliffe never gave him serious thought. They always thought they were going to get somebody else. We had public meetings. I remember being behind the scenes at one meeting. Ed, Ed Moore, that some people remember, who was the uh, lead writer for the Herald, <clears throat> did a front page story on Guilfoyle. And I remember Guilfoyle absolutely effing and blinding him and throwing the newspaper in his face and throwing the storm out and walk out. And we had no, it, it was it was really tense. Him and Ridsdale were falling out with each other. I remember them walking around the room in circles, arguing with each other. And we're just sat in the middle of it. Hang on a minute. This is our club you're talking about. You're not, it's not about you. It's about us. It's about the club. It was some mad times and, and administration period. If you look at the facts and figures of it, there was this consultant for that, that consultant for that. I remember Paul Hart being brought on board to sell players. You think, well, why do you bring somebody on board to sell players? I mean, they're all getting their cut out of it. And in the end, the administrator's fees totaled £700,000 for four months' work. It's a game of two halves, and so is this podcast, so it's time for a break. <laughs> we'll be right back after this advert that's trying to sell you something. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So going on to the company voluntary agreement, to explain that a little bit to, to listeners who maybe don't remember or, or weren't around at the time, so the, that was the agreement whereby the administrators would, would select what was known as the preferred bidder. Now, the preferred bidder was, in theory, meant to be able to provide funding to the club for the entire duration of the period where, where the administration negotiations were taking place. Now, as we'll come on to in a minute, it, it didn't entirely work out that way, but that was the that was the idea. And the company voluntary agreement was an agreement between the club and the creditors, whereby a club would agree to pay a certain amount of money in the pound for for everything code. And I believe the typical amount for other clubs in administration was kind of in the ballpark of 10p in the pound, 20p in the pound, something around it, that. Maybe. Yeah, it was less than, I think it was 7p. But I, I, well, this is it. I think, I think for, Argyle, for Argyle, it was actually 0.7p 0.7, in the pound. Yeah, that's right. so, it, it was, yes. so, so, so I think it, it kind of showed how bad Argyle's debt situation was that it was so much lower and it was actually less than the one percent of of what was owed and, and hmrc were were really kind of seems a bit crazy quite quite far to the back of the line because as i remember 
the order of priority was the secured creditors who let the cover money secured against sale of the ground. Lombard, Lombard were the principal lenders. They were in for 2.1 million and they were part of NatWest. Mass Point were a company that Todd and Gardner formed to try and get in additional funding. I think they were 1.4 million, of which 400,000 was secured against the ground. So two and a half million was secured against the ground. We then had the Plymouth Argyle Training and Development Trust. Yes. Where Paul Stapleton persuaded them to pay the £300,000 that was in their funds towards a VAT bill, otherwise the club would be closed down. That's what he allegedly said. But the thing was, there were six trustees, all Argyle fans, and that left them exposed to the tune of £60,000 each, which is one of the great, the worry and concern of those people. He got lost a bit in the sort of maelstrom of what was happening. But um, as I'll reveal later, they did get sorted out, which was which was great. But just imagine those people with that level of debt because there was a complaint to the Charities Commission about what Paul Stapleton did in his investigation, and it all got very unsavoury. So those were the, the main creditors that had to be p- paid back. Then you had the football creditors, which was the team management and the players. So the staff weren't creditors, and, of course, all the small fry businesses weren't unsecured creditors and, and as Sam said got the 0.7% payback which was yeah although it, although it's worth pointing out here that, there, that, that although legally the staff and players were unsecured there was an EFL stipulation that for us to get our golden share which is the share that the EFL uh you know um gave us to participate in the league is that we did have to come up with an agreement to pay the football creditors in full so the kind of the order of priority was the obviously the administrators fees themselves were basically top of the list then it was the secured creditors then it was the football staff then it was the unsecured creditors yep that's right so HMRC, HMRC were actually right at the bottom of the pile which sounds Kind of crazy, but it but it is indeed the case. And I think HMRC were were one of the creditors who who voted against the 0.7p. Because as Graham alluded to earlier, they were trying to make an example of a football club. But enough of a majority voted for that 0.7p in order for in order for it to pass. And the preferred bidders were were obviously were obviously picked. And I will let Graham explain who who those uh, preferred bidders were and, and all the shenanigans. Yeah, this is the bit really niggle. We knew that James Brent had done a deal with the council. It wasn't publicly known, but in effect, it's actually the same deal as he did uh, uh, when he came when we came out of administration. That sale and lease back of the ground, an arrangement to pay the football league, the football creditors back over a five-year period, and it exposed him to the least risk financially. But it was a solvable, deliverable solution. And he went to Langdon Court on the eve of the CBA meeting, fully expecting to sign the papers, only to be told that the infamous Kevin Heaney, then of Truro City Football Club, had slapped down £300,000 as a down payment of part of a million pounds to fund the administration whilst he acquired the club and and, and the assets attached to it. And that was the beginning of the real trouble because he persuaded Japanese investors that he could get Cineworld to build a, um, a cinema at Home Park and there'd be other property benefits. 
but I knew working in the property industry that he was bouncing that deal around. I knew early on that it was most unlikely to happen. And what he did was cost the club millions because the football creditor debt built up, his players didn't get paid and all the rest of it, until he finally chucked the tail in in August, I think it was, when he couldn't raise the money to complete the deal. And there's various incarnations. Bishop International, you might remember them. There was a Guernsey club. There was a, a Guernsey company. There was a Yorkshire company. They were known as the Irish Consortium at the time. Yeah, I, I mean, it was... Yeah. It was just, the thing was bouncing around and hoping that somebody would come and fund it. And Guilfoyle was bound by it because he accepted the £300,000 towards the funding of the administration. That was when we really did start to launch the campaign. But the other thing that we did, by that time, I mean, I was working full time and this was taking a heavy toll on me working and, and doing this. So I decided to step down in favour of Chris Webb, who was better placed. He actually had an iPhone for a start, which meant he could do emails on the move. And he had more time because he was up and down on the train to London, so he had more time to deal with things than than I did. And I happily stepped aside um, for Chris to take the lead. And of course, Chris was a magnificent trade unionist activist, and his campaigning work was one of the real features of trying to hold Guilfoyle and the rest of them to account. What we realised, with I made the point that Heaney wasn't going to be the man right very early on. So we formed what was called a contingency group. I spoke to Vivian Pengeli, the leader of the council, and said we need what we call a plan B. We call it the contingency group. In case this all falls apart, we need to reactivate the James Brent deal if it all falls apart. And effectively, that's what happened. But Sam, you will remember all the meetings we had, public meetings, and I mean, Ridsdale. I mean, I've got very mixed feelings about him. I mean, he was only interested in what was best for himself. He wanted to be back in football after being kicked out at Cardiff. And I think he was banned as a director at Cardiff in the end. And he, all he wanted to do was be back in football. But what I will say, ultimately, he played a major part in saving the club, and we'll come on to that a bit later. Yeah, he um, he certainly did. But as you also allude to, um, quite rightly, he, he was very self-interested in in a number of ways. Again, to give a little bit of um, of uh, further context to the the listeners about the, the Ridgedale um, deal and, and how many, as Graham alludes to, how many layers there were to that deal. Kevin Heaney could not be the actual owner of the football club because he was the owner of Truro at that time. So under under FA rules, he couldn't own two clubs. So the agreement was, if I remember rightly, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that Heaney would front the company that owned the ground and the area around the ground, but Peter Ridgedale would be the de facto, what would, would be the legal owner of the football club because he ultimately... He, he would run the football yeah. club, yeah. He, he couldn't be owner or director of because he was banned as being a director. So he's incredibly convoluted and, and I'm not sure the FA were terribly impressed. And I, I do remember them writing to Peter Ryan and myself asking about what our thoughts, which is most unusual, but we did have some healthy scepticism, but it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult to believe that somebody like Kevin Heaney could have been so destructive to our football club. I, I got so annoyed, actually, while I was driving down to Truro, I went and banged on the door, front door of his house and he was upstairs peeking through the curtain and I knew then well, you ain't going to be buying our club, that's for sure, because he wouldn't come and talk to me. 
it cost it cost the club a lot and we thankfully we managed to recoup and get out of it but that payment of that three hundred thousand was a killer blow at the time yeah I, I completely agree sorry to get hung up on this technical point my understanding was he wasn't allowed to be a director but he would he would be allowed to be to be the owner because my understanding was that with he the owning Truro someone else had to own the football club and, and that was going to be Risdell at one point have, have I got that wrong or no I think well he I think at one point he, he said he stepped down from Truro and I mean in the end Truro went bust as well didn't they so of course but but either way then the whole Healy Risdale deal was a disastrous thing wasn't it for sure it was it went on for months and you know, the the press um, were trying to prod and poke and but never never got anything. It was always hope is always gonna be next week. Yeah, yeah, got it got it all in place, bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. But I soon learned what the reality of getting a deal across the line was when we had to get it across the line. And there was no way that Heaney and Risdale could ever have done it. No way, no way that anybody else, I think, other than James Frank could have done it for reasons which I'll explain later. Yeah, I mean, I was, again, possibly jumping a little ahead here, but I was there that um, that day at the Argyle Visual in August of 2011 when Peter Ridsdale turned up grinning into here with a bottle of champagne saying that the club had been saved and um, it, and, and that it was going to be all confirmed on Monday. And, and obviously, I think there was literally nothing different had happened at all. I think he was just turning up there for a good PR slot on the six o'clock news, wasn't he, really? it was. Yeah, I, I mean, the strange thing about him, he, he actually had the hots for Natalie Corner. I, I didn't realise this at the time, but she every time he phoned up, she phoned up for an interview, he did it. I could never understand why, but she told me afterwards that was the reason. So uh, he was he was always wanting to be in the limelight, the man that saved Plymouth Argyle. And whilst he wasn't absolutely so, he did play a part, a major part. But um, I, I have to say, uh, did, I, did I dislike him? I disliked his methods. I disliked what he stood for, what he'd done in the past, but... He was a very likable person, a fantastic raconteur, amazing football stories, contacts list as long as your arm, one of a kind. And and um, yeah, he's gone and done a decent job at Preston. So in the right uh, arena, he's, he was a capable uh, performer, but not for Argyle, I don't think. Yeah, so the so as you kind of alluded to, the contingency group was set up because you guys were working behind the scenes. You knew very well that the the deal wasn't wasn't going to happen. Um, there was that infamous meeting, wasn't there, when Gil Foyle turned up at the Guildhall to, to to try and assuage the worries of Argyle fans, and he just got absolutely roasted, didn't he, for, for an he hour did. and a half? Yeah. yeah. I mean, to his credit, he, he, you know, and Ridsdale did front up quite a few meetings, and they, I think they're fairly respectful. Uh, I mean, behind the scenes and before those meetings, it was very fractious. But it was just a PR job, keep the plates spinning, keep the fees being earned. Until August, when Guilfoyle said, "I can't do it anymore. It's not going to happen." I don't think you were at that meeting, Sam. There was a meeting of the contingency group, and um, James Brent said he had a meeting with Guilfoyle, and he actually said to us, "Oh, I think that's it. I think we're done." And that was at Somerset Place. Um, many people remember that. It was quite a tearful occasion. But right at the end of the meeting, he could see that we were all feeling. James Brent said, "No." No, and he actually swore the F word, which coming out of James Brown's mouth was rather odd. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And from that moment on, he set about doing it. Gil Ford told him it was impossible. He had to persuade Lombard 
accept £700,000 payment for a £2.1 million debt. Can you imagine Kevin Heaney as a, as a person that liquidated his company for four million going to Lombard? Will you do that deal? James Brent was an accomplished Schroeder's banker, so he knew which strings to pull, and he pulled that deal off. I mean, Ed Moore and myself couldn't couldn't believe it. Once that deal was in place, the city council came in behind with the sale and leaseback agreement, and we were on our way. Um, we had four weeks in which to do it because the administrators would pull the plug end of October, I think it was, in 2011. The club had to get 300 signatories to accept the, the deal. And the deal was that they would get paid over five years. They'd get a lump sum I'm up front and then paid on the drip over five years. The same for the, the development trust. And the person that negotiated that deal with the FA was Peter Ridsdale. He knew he'd done it before, I think, with Huddersfield, I think. And Greg Clark at the time, who was chairman of the FA, said it was a leap of faith, but it was done. And then right at the last minute, Sam, you might remember this, we were away at Crawley. And I remember Ian Yule, I think, or Chris Webb got a phone call from uh, Peter Ridsdale saying Paul Stapleton and Phil Gill were trying to buy the debt off Lombard for 700000 because they got wind of what had happened. You can just imagine what we thought about that. And we set what was famously called the Dogs of War, and we fans mobilised to stop that happening. The administrators got wind of it. Then in the final moments, towards the end of the administrative period, just as we were about to get it done, the administrators said they wanted the £700,000 fee, and James Brent said, no, it's 400000 and. We absolutely bombarded PA consultancy. They got a bit arsy about it, to say the least. But that was the time we really mobilised to get it over the line. They gave up, said yes. And James Brent, I think we came out of administration, I think, if I remember rightly, 12.27 on the 31st of October, 2008. Yes, indeed. I remember getting the phone call from Chris Webb. I was driving along the A38 and I had to pull over because it was a bit emotional. It certainly was. I remember it was announced to the club by by Chris, and, well, announced to the fans by by Chris and Ian, who were both very heavily involved in the contingency group, on the Friday. And I think it was indicative that we of how much the fans had had, had that trust in James Brent that we completely took that at, at the word. That we, we didn't wait till the Monday. And I'm, I'm saying this in a good way, that we didn't wait till the Monday to fully celebrate. We started celebrating on the Friday because we knew that... Um, and I, I think I can say this, Aaron Bleakley, if not, we knew that unlike Kevin Heaney, James Brent wasn't a bullshitter in, in that respect. We knew that when when he said the club was saved, it actually was yeah. saved. It wasn't it wasn't going to be another smoke and mirrors, champagne at the visual, um, you know, and then Monday the same problems happened. We knew that when when they said that, we knew that every piece of the jigsaw was in place and it, it was simply a technicality that meant we had to, to wait in, until the Monday for the business proceedings to be completed. And that Saturday at... At Cheltenham, um, which I really wish I was at. I, I didn't go to that game because it was my first year at university and it was the end of October and that was my first weekend that my, my parents came to visit me, so I couldn't really get out of that one. But it was, um, I, I went to watch Southampton play that they said, funny enough, with my dad because that's where I went to uni, but that's a, a whole other story. And I, I remember seeing that we'd lost 2-1 at Cheltenham with a last-minute goal, but that, that was very much secondary on the day because we knew that that, that, that meant the club was saved and we were... Well, you, you, you won't remember, Sam, but... Um, Charles Housen, famously, he he was something to do with first great Western, 
and he organised a train for the players and the fans to go up to Cheltenham by train, which was rather impressive way of celebrating. I remember going to the train station and unbelievably Peter Ridsdale was there and me and Ian Newell ended up sitting in the back of his two-door BMW coupe and we, I think my knees were on my chin in the back and we were paranoid about being seen with Ridsdale and I remember getting out of the hotel where the team were. I got out with some grace but I just remember Ian Newell trying to back out of Peter Ridsdale's BMW Coupe, hoping to God that nobody actually saw him do it, but I don't think there's any photos of proof. But um, that was that was a quite an <clears throat> embarrassing moment. But we got we went to the pub in Cheltenham, and and I remember I can't remember the name of the pub, but James and his his son Tom walked in, and it was like a parting of the Red Sea where they walked through to incredible applause and. Um, it was a special day. The result was irrelevant, but we'd been saved. And that was yeah. how we did it. Yeah, I, When I reflect upon it now, and in this conversation now, it's making me quite emotional thinking about it. But the Argyle fans, what an incredible force. The mobilisation, you know, the GTs, the way we use social media, Pusati, everybody. Uh, it was an incredible, incredible achievement by the fans. And... and we were a unified force. And whilst we <laughs> had some hairy moments afterwards, not least at Rochdale, where we are now is even more emotional because of what happened in 2011. Yeah, absolutely. And just to reiterate the timescales of this, all the messing about with the Ridgedale Healy bid with um, sort of three, three and a half months, I think from the that dark day you mentioned at Somerset House to James Rent getting the deal done, was probably, what, six, seven weeks between... Not, yeah, he had, he had four weeks to do it, and he did it. He was waiting for the paperwork to be from the other side in the end. So, I mean, he had a team yeah. of lawyers working seemingly 24 hours a day. Incredible number of agreements. You think doing 300 agreements, I mean, one of the players was in prison. I think two were in Eastern Europe, so all the documents had to be translated in, into East, some Eastern European language. And they were people were just running around getting people signed, and only needed one person to say no, as I understand it, then the deal could have been in trouble. This this is correct because under the under the um, EFL Golden Share rules, um, as I kind of alluded to earlier, whilst the football creditors weren't didn't have the priority level of the secured creditors, they were they were kind of in between. They they were more secured than the unsecured creditors in that. If, if with the unsecured creditors, only the majority would have to agree with these football creditors, whilst they could extend it, every single one would have had to agree, not, not for the business to be legally viable, but for the, for the club to get their golden share. So yeah. obviously it's, it's all very well having a football club. If you can't compete in the league, that would just go bust anyway, wouldn't it? So effectively that was, that was vital to the salvation of the club. And yeah, I think there were one or two holdouts, weren't there, um, of maybe former um, coaches or, and, and players who were, yeah, I think, were yeah. a little bit resistant. But It's always getting the last few over the line was challenging. In fact, I remember Bristol City a few years ago, similar situation with four players didn't accept the deal and it they nearly went as a result but in the end they did but um it, it's difficult to imagine but 300 agreements just think of it all oh yeah all around mm. country different countries it was an incredible achievement yeah people you know you still for the obviously you know the, the staff and the players both both sets of groups involved because 
to go 13 months. I know that they got odd bits of wages here and there, didn't they, from when the 300,000 came in and, and various other bits in the interim. But to go 13 months without getting consistent pay in a consistent time, it's certainly not something I could do. Certainly not something I think many people could do. No, I think no. it was just the, the sheer goodwill of, of the club, of the Green Taverners and various associated groups. Who and and we, shouldn't the, forget, yeah. we shouldn't forget Carl Fletcher and Romain Lario. Um, yeah for the way they handled themselves in the most trying of circumstances, both rookies in terms of management and how they carried Argyle through playing day-to-day with all that on their back and knowing that any day it could finish was incredible. And, and I know Carl Fletcher, it took its toll on him. I do know that. But, um, you know, it's a credit to them particularly. I think I think Kevin Nance might, might have been around at the time. I, I seem to remember. But... Um, yeah, so they deserve credit. I mean, there's so many people to, to list, but I didn't want to forget that. No, and I, and I think, of course, Peter Reid as well. I know it all it sort yes, of ended, yeah. ended a bit sourly with, with him going from one point out of the first nine games and um, Peter Ridsdale got rid of him, didn't he? But obviously the, the incredible work he did in that season in League One, selling his medals to raise funds for the staff yep. wages, paying the, the heating bill in his own pocket, out of his own pocket, as everyone famously knows, and... I've I've heard it on on pretty good authority, and it speaks volumes about the man that he didn't advertise himself. That he himself deferred wages long before anybody else did. That he, but the, the way I heard it, and and maybe this is a bit exaggerated, who knows? But the way I heard it is he pretty much didn't receive a penny for his entire time working at Argyle, and and actually effectively spent money in, in, by paying the heating bill and set and selling his medals. So for a club that he had no prior affiliation with, he must have walked in and thought, oh my. Goodness me! What on earth am I, am I walking into? But he, yeah, he he, he played his part as much as anybody in yeah, the no. club going. Yeah, a special part, and it was it was a lovely guy as well. And I know it was a rough time uh, for him at Argyle, but I'm sure he has special memories of affinity with the fans because he did have a strong affinity with the fans. Football wasn't that great, but then he didn't have the money or, or the players to do it on the pitch. But um, <laughs> Interesting if, if some, you know, magical investment had come in at the start of that season, if Peter Reid had got a fair chance. But obviously, again, there's so much that, as Aaron alluded to, we, we probably barely, you know, I, I, well, I probably maybe maybe being a bit harsh on us, maybe barely scratched the surface, but we've certainly not gone into the whole story because obviously we can look at how many players were sold for a fraction of their true value because the club just had to get yeah. had to get money in. And if Peter Reid had a full season or a full two seasons to to work with those players and build something he, he could have, the football couldn't and most probably would have been been, been a, a lot, lot better. And um, of course, with Carl Fletcher and Lario, the, the other thing that we um, didn't quite go over was the the um, way that they effectively helped get the staff uh, wages by by the player strike that, that, that nearly happened because if the players um, basically said that for the game at Burton, um, which was September, so that was kind of in the, probably just in the interim. Just before James Brent. Got the nod, yeah. Just before the Somerset House Day, yeah, I think so. That that was that was effectively, or, or just after, but somewhere around that time, that they basically said that in, in less than they, they were doing it for the for the staff as well, not just for the, for themselves as players, but that unless the, the club were willing to come to some kind of settlement for part of August wages, that they would would effectively withhold their labour and, and and not go not not play at Burton, and they got. And they managed to get the club to compromise. It wasn't quite the the full wages they were originally no, looking for, but they agreed on a they agreed on a settlement of I think forty percent of of August wages, which was just again incredible leadership from 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 Carl and, and Rowan, as you say. And then that's again something they did that wasn't you know obviously certainly you know helped the squad 
of course, that certainly helped the, the people like the, the ticket office staff, the turnstile staff, the cleaners, the office staff, you know, the people who were probably even more severely affected than they as players were, which, again, full credit to them for that. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, just, just an absolutely incredible, incredible story. And like I said, I'm sure we could probably, uh, if, if we wanted to, go go even deeper into it. But just to wrap up then, this about the, the story of the, the club's journey in administration, what would you say was the... The, the kind of the the lowest point of it, the one point where you thought, hang on a minute, we really could be looking at having to reform as a, a you know, like a, a Phoenix club here. Was that the was that the Somerset House meeting, or would that have been some other point? Yeah, yeah some, Somerset Place. Yeah, that was that Somerset was, Place. My apologies. That was, yeah, that was the time. I mean, ironically, it's the road I now live in, twist of fate. But um, yeah, that was it. That tears were shed on that on that at that meeting for sure. Yeah, but we got round it, and you know. It's a shame that Ed Moore never was able to do the book because there's a lot. Probably too many people who would have wanted a certain for it, I imagine. Yeah, and and you can't do it on a podcast because somebody might be listening. <laughs> You've given some fantastic insight nonetheless, though, Graham. And, and for me, it was, um, again, when I was a kind of a, a, not a board member, but a, but a de facto board member, the, the initial six, as I mentioned earlier, had a meeting with Peter Ridgedale as well. And and I, I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been Lee. Somebody asked um, to, to Peter Ridgedale, is liquidation, you know, is this, I, I can't remember the exact wording, but it's basically along the lines of, is liquidation a real possibility? And Ridgedale just replied, it's more than that, it's a strong probability. And at yeah. that moment, I was kind of, whoa, this is where it starts yeah. to get a bit real, you know. Yeah. And if, I guess, you know, I, I think if, if it had happened, we would have we would have found a way to, to fight again. We would have done what Barry did and we would have done what some other clubs have done and then reformed. But I think if we'd have had to have done that, we would have probably found a way of doing it. But, but just thank God we didn't. Thank God it never came to that. Thank yeah, God absolutely. that we are in the position we are, whereby we, we continued as, as a continuation of the same football club rather than having to found a new one and, and you know if, if we did have to found a new one I certainly don't think that that club would be anywhere remotely close to being in the championship right at this moment um, no, so, so just thank goodness things ended as they as they did and obviously Peter Ridsdale then I think stayed on to the first two or three months didn't he before going to Preston yeah he was made director of football operations which is a peculiar title when you think about it because James Brent had no football knowledge clearly he needed somebody who did but I think almost within a couple of months I think he got Trevor Hemmings came knocking from Preston and he, he lived at Lancaster that's where he lived it was a job made for him and to be fair to him ever since Preston have done pretty well and if you've been to the ground the refurbishment of the ground is you know testament to the work Peter Ridsdale did and speaking to Preston fans they actually quite like him they didn't like Ryan Lowe much but they actually did quite like Peter Ridsdale yeah, I think I think opinions quite split on him. From from the, I've got I've got a friend who's a Preston fan who can kind of see that he's done good things in some ways, but um, wouldn't wouldn't trust him as far as he could throw him. No, I think no, that's the words he would probably I still, use. That, that will always be the case. Yeah, yeah. with that caveat. He was an interesting character, and I think it's tough to say how things would have played out if he'd never have came down for the walking holiday. But um, you could argue they might have played out better because Brent could have taken over the club a lot earlier and and cleared things a lot earlier. But then you could also argue that they might have played out worse, and that the club would have never have got to the position where Brent was able to come in in the first place. It's obviously quite an interesting hypothetical, isn't it? But he was he was certainly an interesting man and one who would provoke a lot of debate. Um, 
Graham, I'm, I'm sure we could we could probably go on all evening because there was obviously so much after administration that you were kind of involved in as well, wasn't there, with the supporters board? But perhaps that's a story best left for, yeah, for yeah. another day. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure you. I'm, listen, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, having you on. I hope you've enjoyed uh, listening to it as well to all the listeners. But that was a. Uh, yeah, that was uh, the story of, of our time in, in administration and, and Graham's involvement in the trust and, and then later the contingency group that helped help get the club out of it. Aaron, was there anything more you want to add before we close off? Not really said much, obviously. I mean, I've just been sat here listening in, mainly in awe. Uh, hugely grateful to, to yourselves. I'll give Sam some credit as well. Uh, just a little. <laughs> you know, everybody involved and everybody you've named throughout the last hour or so, obviously in varying levels, uh, some some shouldn't get any credit, uh, some get vast amounts. You know, having a team to watch week in, week out, puts perspective uh, on things, especially, you know, compared to other sides that we've, we've lost along the way. I suppose a closing question for me would be just like, how proud are you to see the club like back where we were when, you know, this whole debacle kicked off, you know, back in the championship after all that? When, when we made it in 2011 I had a dream of what I wanted the football club to be 12 years later that dream hasn't been met it's been exceeded in every way possible we've got the most fantastic chairman communication levels transparency all the things that were important to me at least Um, we have the most fantastic management management team I mean Shuey I just love the guy his humility and, and anybody went to the meeting the Cornish fans last week would have seen an absolute unique connection with the fans. He gets us. He gets the city, as does Simon Hallett, clearly. And that is an absolute important driver for taking us forward. I'm really optimistic. Let's survive this season. Let's build on it bit by bit. I could never, ever have dreamed of the club being today. Well, it, back in 2011, it's, it's incredible what's happened. Yeah, it's, it's an absolute madness and putting everything into perspective, just even to be in the championship in this moment that we're in, like you said, under brilliant stewardship. Yeah, it, it's absolutely fantastic. But obviously, like I said, appreciate everything yourselves and, and everybody you've mentioned have done. But I think we'll call that a day. Maybe there's a maybe there's a part two coming up. Our first ever My Our Life part two that needs to be had, Graham. Well, that would be good. That would be the premiership edition, hopefully. Hopefully, hopefully. Just to sign off, I suppose, thanks for listening. Uh, make sure you rate us on whatever podcast app you're um, listening on. Uh, let us know who else you want on. Is there anybody you'd like us to speak to, Graham? Yeah, a few of the people I mentioned in passing. You know, I think they would be willing volunteers. But like I said, appreciate you coming on. Cheers, Graham. Thanks a lot. Enjoyed it. Thank you, Graham. Cheers. Cheers, Sam. Cheers. That's the end of another episode of Green and White, brought to you by Argyle Life. Before you go, please make sure you drop us a review on whichever podcast platform you are using and make sure you follow us on Twitter at ArgoLife1886. Cheers. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply.
apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.